Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. It's good to see so many of you. It's been crowded in the room the last few weeks. And so just one more reminder that uh, next week's Labor Day, and we know none of you will be here anyway, but two weeks from now, uh, we'll be going to two services. There's still a lot of work for us to do. And so be, be ready for a phone call to say, hey, we need help. So get your yes ready because that's a ton of work. Uh, but it's something obviously we have to do uh, to make room for as many people as can to hear uh, the gospel. And that's, that's our hope and desire for, as a church. So just, again, thanks for being here. Uh, we're excited about what God's doing. We've been in a series for the better part of, of really a year, a calendar year, and it'll be about a year and a quarter by the time we finish in the book of Romans. And so we've come to the, the last part of Romans, Romans 12 through 16, and uh, we're talking about, as we've been seeing Paul laboring to tell us what the gospel is, now he begins to tell us what the gospel does and the way that it affects our relationships. And so we come to uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 3 this morning. If you would turn there in a Bible with me, you can. Uh, you can see there, or it'll be on the screen uh, for you to, to read along as I read, or you can, obviously, it's in your worship folder as well. So let's read this passage together uh, and talk about it for a minute. Romans 12, 3 through 8. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. So how does the gospel affect our relationships? Well, we said last week the very first thing, the most important thing is the way that the gospel makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. We were made to walk and talk with God. That's what we see in the book of Genesis. And nothing else is right until we are right with him. And the gospel is the good news that we can be made right with him in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't stop there, you see. Nothing else is right until we get right with God, but once we're right with him, then there begins to be a ripple effect that goes out into the other parts of our life. If you have a relationship with God, is what we learned today, then you will, by definition of that, also have a relationship with his people, the church. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. It doesn't exist in the Bible. The letters that were written were written to churches, not to individuals. The you in phrases like, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, those yous are plural nouns. It means you all, you together. I mean, the only way to be a Christian is to be a Christian with other Christians. And not casually, but covenantally. Just like there's no casual approach to a relationship with, with him, with, with the Father, there is no casual approach to a relationship with God's people. And so that's why we take vows to one another when we bring people into membership. The church is not a spiritual Kiwanis club. It's a, it's a gospel platoon on the battlefield with the bombs going off and the bullets flying in the air. There's no such thing as casual, a casual approach to these things. So, um, so I was having a conversation with a friend the other day <clears throat> that kind of br brings to light some of this. Uh, he was asking why we don't live stream our 
services on the internet because then, you know a lot of churches are doing that and there's good reasons uh, to do that and there's and there's good reasons not to and I was trying to explain to him one of the reasons why there's just a, a certain hang-up that I have and the hang-up that I have the reason that we've not if you've been wondering why we don't do that is that worship is something this service this this event that we do it's something that's meant to be experienced together there's an irreplaceable one another component to Christian worship. Worship is not me and God in my pajamas kind of thing. That's not, that's not the way this is designed. You have to be here. You have to be here in the room. It, I, really, Martin Lloyd-Jones wouldn't even let them record his audio because he said there's, you're just listening. And I hope, I hope you're there. I really believe this. There is a difference between being in the room and listening to the sermon and not being here and trying to get it by listening to the recording on the Internet. It's just different. It's meant to be a relational, connectional thing, and you can't get that. I mean, technology just destroys that. And it's destroying part of the fabric of Christianity that says I can do this in a way and not be really connected to anybody or any, anything. And it really isn't the way it's supposed to be. The church, we, we're prone to think of the church as, uh, as a consumer as, or the service as a product that we consume. And so we just get it, you know, and we get it whenever we can or whenever it's most convenient to us. But the church is not an opportunity to get. It's an opportunity to give. Because you and I need to give more than we need to get. That's what it means to be made in God's image. We come to worship, we participate in the church to give God glory, to give to him, and to give to one another. So the Bible even says, I was thinking about this this morning, the Bible even says that when we sing, we're not just having a private moment with God, we're teaching and we're encouraging one another according to the Bible. Ephesians 5.19 says that we address one another in our singing. I mean, it's really amazing. We are addressing one another. In other words, we sing that, um, we sing that song, Oh, the Power of the Cross, and we recite right, the story of the gospel together, and we're, and we're singing to one another the reality of the stories that are central to our faith. We're addressing one another in our songs and hymn. It says in Ephesians 5, making melody to the Lord. So in other words, not just in the way that our voices come together, but as we sing, the actual coming together, the melding together of our hearts into one melody before him. And so, you know, we're meant to, to give. And you can't give if you're not here. You've been made to give and not just to get. And so we come to this passage about spiritual gifts. This is really where spiritual gifts come into play here. Uh, this is a passage about what it means to belong to the church, but particularly through the means of these, of these things, these charismata is the word that Paul uses here. Obviously, we get the word charismatic, these spiritual gifts. And a gift is, is something you have to give. It's a talent or a resource or a character trait that God has graced you with that he intends for you to grace others with. A spiritual gift, we're told. In other words, a supernatural endowment that when you use it releases supernatural power that has supernatural effect and impact on other people. Now, we're prone to think of these gifts as displays of power and authority, and at times they are, but the word literally is grace. Do you notice that there? It's, it really, instead of spiritual gift, it really is a, a spiritual grace. It's a charismata. In other words, it's grace in the person. It's not a natural part of your personality. Uh, you experience grace in the using of it towards others. There's uh, a sense of being carried along, as you, as you might say, beyond the normal limits of your personality. With the great preachers 
uh, people would comment that uh, they were these they were a certain kind of men, and then they walked into the pulpit and they were transformed almost into different kinds of people. Because there's this supernatural energy at work that's coming from somewhere other than you when you're when you're using these things that Paul talks about. And then lastly, it produces grace in others. So you, you, it's grace in you, you experience grace in the use of it, but the result is grace in other people. In other words, it drives them deeper into an experience of God's love, and they're built up. That's what the scripture says. So the teaching of the Bible is that if you're a Christian, if your faith, if through faith you've been united to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, I was talking to my 11-year-old about this this morning on the way to church, then no matter how new to the faith you are, no matter how young or how old you are, you have something to give. And the command is very simple if you see it there in verse 6. Having gifts, what's it say? Use them. That's the command. He's given everybody gifts. Our job is to use them. Be active. Hashtag do something. Do what? Doesn't matter. Do something. Find somewhere. You know, if teaching, he says, verse 6, teach. If service, serve. If encouragement, then encourage. In other words, don't sit around and wait to be asked to do something. Right? Love being you. Do you love being you? Don't sit around and dream about being someone else. Be you. And then get to work. Now, we could talk about, okay, what do all these... I want to be careful not to... Because you realize... um, that here we have a list of gifts, uh, and then in, in 1 Corinthians 12, which is a parallel passage, there's another list of gifts, but neither place is meant to be an exhaustive sense of here are all the spiritual gifts. So I'm really leery of these spiritual inventory tests, spiritual gifts inventory tests that say there's 32 gifts named in the Bible, and so which one are you? Because I don't know that Paul meant to say here's a catalog. He's just saying here's some examples of the kinds of things I'm talking about. And so when I talk about spiritual gifts, I'd much rather talk to people about um, about in this way, that one of the ways that our confession and our catechisms talk about the work of Christ is that he occupied a threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. And so now in the church, I think, the, the same offices are in effect through the members of the church using their spiritual gifts. So I think they're prophetic gifts. There's a cluster of gifts that really have to do with bringing God's God or God's word to people, evangelism and preaching and teaching and prophecy and tongues and maybe even music and, and that sort of things, uh, the, the prophetic gifts of really centering on God's word and bringing God's word to people. And then there are the priestly gifts that have to do with meeting people's physical needs and, and being sympathetic to people in their struggles, gifts like mercy and helps and service and shepherding and giving, generosity, and these sorts of things. And then there are the kingly gifts that have to do with organization and decision-making, wisdom and leadership and administration and faith and apostleship and so forth. And somewhere, more than likely, the way I would coach you and encourage you to think is everybody in the room is probably primarily in one of those. You're either a prophetic person or you're a priestly person or you're a kingly person. Does that make sense? In other words, priestly people who like other people aren't always very kingly, and kingly people who just like to run around and tell everybody what to do are not necessarily the most compassionate people. So your gift set probably lines up, and so I just have, that's just for free, you know, something to think about instead of, I wonder what my, you know, my this gift or my this gift, I would tell you, think about it that way. And we need, and the point is, the church needs all of those different things to be operating together to be whole in Christ's absence. But the main point is just this, that the church is not a spectator sport. And that the pathway to joy 
and fulfillment in your experience of church is not to find a church that has the kind of preaching and worship you want and a children's ministry for your kids and all these kinds of things. The pathway to joy and fulfillment in your experience of church is to find a church that will take you seriously and then train you to be active using your gifts for God's glory and the good of his people. And that's the, that's the reality. So before we go any further then, I'm doing a long introduction, okay, because we need to talk about, and then we'll be really quick once we, once we get to the other. So we're, we're, we're under the compulsion here, verse 6, to be using these gifts. Now, before we go any further, let me just offer two notes of caution, two words of caution to us as we think about what it means for us to be active doing this. And the first caution I would just warn us against is there's a sense in which we have to be careful to not offer only your spiritual gift to the church. Don't offer only your spiritual gift. And by that I mean there are some people who identify their spiritual gift and then they say, this is the only way I can be serving. Right? But, hey, you know, so you get a call. Hey, could you really help us? No, you know what? That's not one of my spiritual gifts. So, no, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't do that. And what I would say to you, I think biblically we need to round this out a little bit and say, biblically, you are God's gift to the church, not just your spiritual gift. You, you the person, you who you are. And so don't allow the idea of spiritual gifts to keep you from offering yourself wherever you're needed, not just in the place of your personal strength. Part of identifying calling is not just what am I good at, it is also what, what's the need? Where's there an opportunity? And, and we, as a, I mean, we need to go past, you know what? I mean, you know, the, you, well, no, children's ministry, I'm not called to children's ministry. Well, I, listen, can I just say something? I don't know how you could be in this church, have raised your hand in vowing to help ch- the, the parents of the children in this church and see how many of them go over there and come to the conclusion that you're not called to children's ministry. Right? It's you. It's not just whether, I mean, it is a special person that can keep up with 15 three-year-olds for 45 minutes. I get it. But don't just offer only your spiritual gift. But then the second thing we have to be careful of is that we not only, that we, the second danger is that we would offer our spiritual gift only to the church. And by that I mean here's a Redeemer tagline, okay? The church, we say all the time, the church is a training ground for ministry. It is not the opportunity for ministry. The church is the staging area for a gospel invasion into the city. It is where all of the weapons and the resources and the people are gathered and cataloged and made ready and then deployed as needed for the mission. So if you've ever seen Black Hawk Down, it's it's a great war movie. It was on TV the other night. The Marines and the Rangers, it's about the, the, um, what's the word I want to use? The battle that happened in Ethiopia maybe 20 years ago or so. Uh, But, you know, um, the Marines and the Rangers are gathered outside the city, and they get suited up, and then they get the ammo and the equipment they need, and they load the Humvees and the Black... Blackhawk helicopters, and they go out on the mission. Now, spoiler alert is it doesn't go so well when they get out there. And so what happens is is they have to regroup. They have to fall back to base. They have to reload. They have to change gear. uh, And they, you know, they get the food and the energy they need so that they can go out because the mission is out there. And that's the way God's designed the church is to operate that way. Now, Again, long introduction, so forgive me, but let me just say one more thing, and that is, let me talk about how this is a unique unique challenge in our church, and it is for a couple of different reasons. The first is uh, that we have just decided to not be a program-driven church. We are desperately trying to refuse the natural inclination to institutionalize now in our 10th year, 
and to create programs that need to be staffed and so forth that then require that you recruit volunteers so that more of your time gets sucked into what we're doing here and you have less time to be in your neighborhood as a neighbor. And so we, we are different than other churches in the sense that we have a very limited range of the things that we need for people to do because we're trying to be as light institutionally as we possibly can be. Does that make sense? And so part of what we have to see is that if we're going to use our gifts, it may not be that we use them here. And then the other thing is, is that in a lot of ways, if we're not careful, the church, the, the pastor or the leadership team can become kind of the funnel through which all of the gifts get, get operated in the church. So, you, in other words, you, you wait for someone to give you uh, the thumbs up or the authority to use your gifts. Listen, if, if, if you're waiting on me uh, to be obedient to what Paul says here, we got big problems because there's only one of me and there's a whole lot of you. You with me? You see what I'm saying? If you have gifts, what's the, what's the text tell you to do? Use them. But, but and, and we can, no, but I got to get, I got to get authorization. You have, listen, I don't give authorization for the use of gifts. Who does? The spirit does. You with me? So use them. And if we can't figure out a place to use you, then find some other place to use them. Because that's what's most important. Uh, I was reading an article in the New York Times this week. Geo actually sent it to me. It was really great. It was about a colony of ants. And uh, ants are known for their industriousness, right? We know this. And so a group of scientists studied how ant colonies worked. And they found a universal rule that among ants, like among every other you know, social organization known to man, about 30% of the, of the population did 70% of the work. Even among ants. There's got to be a design thing here, okay? <clears throat> but, the, here's, but here's what they noticed is that the fascinating thing was that though 30% did 70% of the work, it wasn't the same 30% all the time. So the scientists would remove hard, the hardest working ants. And what happened is, is when the hardest working ants were removed, then, then the ants that were just like chilling and, and you know, just kind of sitting around doing nothing, as soon as those hardworking ants were removed, they just jumped right in and took their place. And so, but, but no matter what they did, so they tried all of these variables and outcomes, and no matter what they did, it kind of held true that no, no matter what variable they, they, they took away, 30% did 70% of the work. It stayed in effect. So, the, so in other words, and so they concluded, they said, you know, well, then it must be that the most effective method, it's the most effective, actually, that only 30% of the group be working at any given time. And then what they noticed is that the ants, uh, what they would do is the colony kind of self-regulated itself and the ants would regularly turn away from their work when they got tired to allow others to take their place. So there's this kind of like, okay? And the lesson's this, that too few workers is a problem. And a lot of times we're prone to think that we need more workers, but too many workers can also be a problem. We need 30%, but we need a revolving 30%. Does that make sense? That was just really helpful for me. So in the sense that we, uh, if you want to think about Redeemer for a minute, uh, you may not be part of the 30% right now that's really bearing most of the weight, but get ready. It probably is going to be your turn eventually. A lot of our leaders after 10 years are tired. We need new volunteers. We need new community group leaders. We need new people to step up because some of us are worn out ants that just need to take a break for a little while. And that's what this passage gets us ready to do. There's a parallel passage in Romans 12, as I've said, and in Rome, I mean, excuse me, in Corinthians 12. And in 1 Corinthians 12, in talking about the gifts, Paul says, look, here's my concern with talking to you about these gifts. He says, I don't want you to forget, I don't want you to forget that in using your gifts, you better be loving. I want you to love. 
Here, here his concern is similar, but he uses a different concept. He says, here, as you're using your gifts, as you're, you're going about doing this together as a church, I don't want you to forget that whatever you do, you need to do it. You need to use your gifts, but use them always in humility. His concern is humility here. And so that's what I want to finish by just really quickly walking through. What he's calling us to is not only to serve, verse 6, whatever gifts you have, use them, he says. Get busy, do it. But the only way to do it, the Christian way to do it. In other words, if you're here and you're not a Christian, one of the ways that you can tell that the gospel really is real is the way that it begins to form people who can be active in the things that, that God has called them to do but can do so with humility. Because humility is the defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus. Because it's the defining characteristic of the gospel. Because it's the defining characteristic of God himself. And so humility in serving is what Paul's called us to with your spiritual gifts. And we just want to look at what that means first, why it is, why, why humility, why is Paul so concerned about humility, and then lastly, how do we get it? And we're going to be really fast here, okay? But, so we're talking about the spiritual gifts, but really the call is to do so with humility. So first, what does it look like then to use your gifts but with humility? Look at verse 3. Paul says, I say to everyone among you that you not, ought to th- not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but instead, verse 3, to think with sober judgment. So humility is defined by Paul as thinking soberly about yourself. The word there means to have a right perspective. It means to be in touch with reality about yourself and about your relationship with God and about your relationship with others. So thinking soberly means first that you don't have too high a view of yourself. You don't have a superiority complex when it comes to the rest of the group. I mean, here's the truth in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head say to the foot, I have no need of you. See, your thinking about yourself and your gifts has to be in line with that truth that Paul espouses there. The most public, the most upfront gifts in the church are no more important to the church's health and success than the most behind the scenes and overlooked gifts. I mean, if you don't lead this community, you know, so we have to be, well, let me say, we have to be careful when we begin to hear these kinds of things creeping into uh, the way we talk about our role. When we start to say things like, well, if I don't lead the community group, then who will? Or, you know, I could do that so much better than so-and-so. Those kinds of attitudes are toxic because they're slowly moving away from what Paul's calling us to here, to soberly think about ourselves in humility. So thinking soberly also means you don't have too high a view, but you also don't have too low a view. You don't have an inferiority complex either. You don't look at everybody else and think, you know, who am I? I mean, I wish I was more like, you know... Her. I mean, I'm a nobody. I've got nothing to give. Because, again, here's the truth. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would no longer make it any less part of the body. So your thinking of yourself and your gifts has to be in line with that truth. You have to refuse to give your gifts to the church. You know, well, in other words, you can't refuse to give your gifts to the church because you think they're not important. That's not humility. It's actually a form of pride. It's just as toxic as the other kind of thinking. So to think soberly means that you don't think about yourself too much. That's really what it means. And the word there refers to being hyper aware of yourself. So pride is not just thinking too much or too little about yourself. It's just thinking about yourself too much. It's having a consumer mindset when it comes to 
uh, being a part of a church. You know what I mean by that? Always asking, well, how's this going for me? Or what's, what's this going to be like for me? That's what the Bible means by sin, this besetting selfishness, this self-referential view of the world, always bringing it back to me. But thinking soberly is realizing that when it comes to the church, there is no me. Did you hear that? When it comes to this thing we do, there is no me, there's us. The church is a body. Do you see that metaphor, verse 4? And as a body, we are organically and vitally connected to one another. And so a lot of people think of the church as a train. Let me just, this is, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says there's the engine and then there are the cars. And each of the cars is really kind of somewhat self-contained. They have their own little thing going on. And then they're attached by couplings to one another. And so the train is just a, a bunch of parts that are all kind of loosely connected. But Paul's metaphor is a body. The church is like a human body. There are parts, yes, but all of those parts are organically, organically connected to one another. In our bodies, there's one head. And the brain sends all of the electrical impulses throughout the body to coordinate all of the body's movements. And the head is connected to the arms and the legs and all the parts are connected to one another through a network of electrical wiring that runs throughout the whole body. So Paul writes, elsewhere in Philippians 2 about the church, be of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. If you think about the body again, a single heartbeat in our, in our bodies, pushes blood and oxygen to all the different parts of the body to keep them alive. It's the circulatory system, right? So there's a there's connection through the circulatory, circulatory system throughout the body. And, and in Acts 4, it says that the church was, and this is the ideal, that the church be of one heart and soul and having everything in common. And then there's the nervous system that connects all the parts so that whatever one part of the body feels, the whole body feels. If you get an, like, like, an in, like a, a hangnail on your pinky finger, it drives you crazy, doesn't it? Think about that. It disrupts the entire body. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians again, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice. So it takes humility because, see, the church is never just me. In the human body, when one part begins to operate independently of all of the other parts, there's a name for that. Anybody know what it is? Disease. The church simply does not function if we think of ourselves as little individual lives loosely tied together by our, an hour time slot once a week in a building on Dundee Road. We are a body vitally connected to our head, the Lord Jesus, and therefore vitally connected to one another. We belong to one another, the Bible says. We are responsible for one another. And so we have so much reimagining to do here. Because if you have too high a view of yourself, you'll do damage to the body. If you have too low a view of yourself, you'll damage the body. You'll shrink back and you won't offer your gifts. You'll be thinking too much about yourself. Humility is recognizing that you are part of a whole. It's not about you. It's about what's good for all of us. That's the first thing. But second, why? Why do we need humility? If that's what it is, not thinking so much about me, but thinking more about us, we need humility because, the part of the, because being a part of this body, uh, the goal is oneness, and oneness requires humility. So look at verse 4. He says we are one body, and this is the teaching everywhere in the Scriptures. Ephesians 4, that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling with humility, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because there's one body. How many times can he say one, right? One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. 
In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prayed to the Father in his last hours on this earth. And do you know what he prayed? Do you remember what he prayed? Make them one. Because that was the thing that was on his heart. And he said it was crucial to our mission and to our witness that we be a living demonstration of God's sacrificial love leading to peace in the way that we just refuse to live any other way than the being at peace with one another. Now, ironically, the greatest threat to this oneness is the ways that we're different. It's a supernatural oneness, see, because it's a unity but not a uniformity. Cults produce uniformity. Everybody looks the same and talks the same and acts the same and so forth. But the spirit, the spirit, when it's at work, always produces variety. Verse 5, though many, one body in Christ. And so, get me, a spirit-filled church is a multicolored, multi-generational, wildly varied group of people who are wild about one another and all their differences. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good sentence if I do say so myself, okay? I probably should say it again, okay? A spirit-filled church is a multicolored, multi-generational, wildly varied group of people who are wild about one another and all of their differences. And ironically, that work of the Spirit is also the biggest threat to the goal of oneness. So the more the Spirit works to create diversity, the greater the risk there is for disunity. Every church has a personality. Every church is easier for certain types of people to find their place in and harder for others. And the issue is just whether we accept this or whether we fight against it. And you need to know where I'm coming from. I'm coming from the place that I believe that the church should always be reforming, that the church should always be being perfected, that it should never be settled. And so if you're here among us and you wonder whether you fit in here, this is exactly where you need to be. We need you. If you're here and you're more effusive in your worship, a Presbyterian church is the best place for you to be. Because we need you. God, we need you. Right? You with me? And we need you to be you. Because the goal is not conformity. It's not uniformity. It's unity in all of our differences. And of course, that requires humility because it means that you will probably never get the church you want. And that's okay because it's not all about you or me. There's something else that's more important, and what's more important is the witness to the power of the gospel to bring people so different from one another together in love. The world knows that the world needs to know that we can disagree and still love one another. That, that, like, that would lead the world. Because you can't find it out there. And it's only the gospel that can do that. So apply this in a couple of ways. What this means, I think, for us is that, for one, we appreciate people who are different than than you. A lot of the division in the church is because of temperamental differences. Sometimes it's doctrine. A lot of times it's just personality clashes. So you're being forced, here's what's happening. You're being forced to live in close proximity to people that you wouldn't otherwise choose as friends. Birds of a feather flock together, as they say, but not in the church. Not if it's spirit-led, not if it's spirit-filled. And so one of the key skills we have to learn is to appreciate how we're different and not assume that different is bad, not judge one another in our differences, but to, but to enjoy and love and cherish one another in the ways that we're different from one another. Diversity is not a liberal value, it's a biblical value. 
Another thing we can do is put our happiness in someone else's happiness. I mean, people are going to be excited about things you're not excited about. Can you get excited about what others are excited about for their sake? Jonathan Edwards defined love as putting your happiness into the happiness of another, and it takes incredible humility to say, you know what, this is not really my thing, but I'm going to show up and be as excited as I can be because it's not all about me anyway. The other thing we can do is we can recognize that some do have greater gifts than others, but that does not make them greater than anybody else. There are parts of the body, let's be honest, that are more important than others to the functioning of the body in some ways. I said I I contradicted myself earlier, but there really is a talking out of both sides. Listen, if you had to choose between living without your eyes or living without your pinky toe, it's an easy choice, right? Some have greater gifts. But here's the good news. That doesn't make them greater because all of this is grace. Remember? And that's the last thing. How? Where does, this, where does this humility come from? Where do we get it? And the thread woven throughout all of this section of Romans 12 that ties it all together is this idea of grace. Look at verse 3. For by grace given to me, Paul says. Verse 6. Having, have graces. Is really, that's really the word, not gifts. Having graces that differ according to the grace given to us. And grace refers to a status, to a position, to a gift that is contrary to merit. Christianity is grace. It is not a matter of what we do, but what God does for us in Christ, what he's done for us. Our salvation, our place in the church, our spiritual gifts, all of these things are a gift from God. We don't work for any of it. It's not given to us because we've achieved. It is sheer gift. We were sinners, and Christ died for us, making us right with God. And having died, he was raised and then ascended into heaven. And upon his ascension, we're told in Ephesians 4, he poured out his spirit upon the church, giving gifts to men. Our God is unlike any other. Typically, when a conquering hero returns home, he is celebrated and showered with gifts by the people he has saved. But when our hero returned home to heaven, Ephesians 4 says, uh, unlike any other, he was not showered with gifts, but he celebrated by showering his church with gifts for her mission that she might carry on and complete the work of glorifying the Father in his absence. That's grace. Whatever good thing, whatever strength, whatever talent you have, it's not something to boast in. There's not one thing that a single one of us have that isn't gift. Grace means that my spiritual gifts, my strengths, my personality... None of it came from me. It's all a gift from God, and therefore it's not mine. It's not for me. It doesn't belong to me. My gifts are not a form of self-expression. They are a way of loving and caring and serving for other people. Uh, Whatever gifts I have, they are the property of the rest of the church. So I can be used or not. It doesn't matter. I can be on stage or in the back row. No difference. Grace is the great leveler. The ways we're different from one another are God's doing, and so there there can't be any pride or boasting or on the other side envy or jealousy we we don't believe in salvation by spiritual gift some may be more gifted than others but talent has nothing to do with merit remember the gospel god does not does not relate to us based upon our performance grace therefore we do not relate to one another on the basis of performance some may be more public than others some may be more active but no one is any better or any lesser than anyone else because we're all here because of grace and here's the illustration as i just close my grandfather 
Uh, and I've told this story before. It's just my favorite. and just so keeps me where I need to be. My grandfather took up golf in his retirement. And he was retired for a long time, so he played a lot of golf. Uh, he played all the way into his 80s, and towards the end of his uh, life, he was still trying to go out there quite a bit. And he and his golfing buddies, they, had to, they got to where they had to work together. It was the same foursome that, that played every week. And they had to work together as a team in order to get through the round of golf. Okay, so my grandfather was, uh, was nearly deaf. He was actually selectively deaf, but he... Um, but he really was kind of challenged in that area. But even as he got older, he had really good eyes, which was really good because one of the other men in his foursome was a guy that was almost completely blind. So he would hit the ball off the tee and literally have no idea where it went. And, his, and my grandfather would be his eyes, and he would you know, get him in the cart and, and I'd go find the ball. And, then there, I'm, and I'm not making this up. Then there was an, a third member of the foursome that suffered from dementia. And so literally by the time he hit the ball off the tee and got back into the cart. He had forgotten that he didn't hit the ball. And so they had to like get him wherever they were and they, and they took care of one another. <laughs> it was cute, I, w- I never got to see it. He just told me stories. I should have hidden out in the trees and watched because it would have been a hoot. But my point is this, individually, they would have never been able to finish a round of golf, but together they were able to keep playing for years and years and years because they just relied upon one another. Church, listen, that's us. We're not the Justice League. We're a band of faithful friends helping each other do things that we could never do on our own, and God is faithful to supply any lack we find in ourselves through the strength of some other pilgrim as we journey home together. And that's why the Reformer said, You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. Being a part of the church is hard, isn't it? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to be related to God's people because we hurt one another, and and it's just a difficult thing. But listen, there's no other way to be a Christian. So what gifts do you have? Use them. But as you do, do it in humility because that's what brings God glory, and it's what does good to other people. So let's pray. Can we pray? So, Father, thank you that your spirit has been given to us because of the work of our dear Lord and Savior Jesus, that he is our quartermaster, as it would be, that he is the one that, that, that outfits us with the weapons uh, and the resources and all the gadgets that we need, the patience and the kindness and uh, the, the endurance, all of the stuff that we need to to live faithfully. And so we lean into your spirit this morning uh, and we confess in these moments the ways that we have probably been prone to look down on one another in judgment because of the ways that we're different. Forgive us, don't ever let that be true. Help us by your spirit to appreciate all the differences in the room because together we make a pretty cool person. And that's the way you've designed your church to live. And so would you call us, would you call us through this text this morning, not only to to the deployment of our whole selves for the good of your people, but but ultimately for your glory, uh, you've called us to make war, a different kind of war, granted, but war, to lay down our lives as you've laid down yours for us, to do it for one another, and in doing so, so that the world might see through our love for one another the love that you have for them. That's our call. And so give us the spirit now to obey and to answer yes as we hear you call us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am regularly amazed that the gathering of talented people that God has put in our church, you are some amazing people, but I worry for you and for me that we would ever 
start to rely upon our own strength or our own energy or our own efforts or our own wisdom or whatever it might be and not lean in to what God has provided through the death of his son and the ascension into heaven, the spirit, to put strength in every stride, to give grace for every hurdle. That's what these words mean, that he is committed to. We, don't have, we can pray and ask that, but his mind is already made up to do that very thing for us. That's what these words tell us. And so receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace as he sends us now, for now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.